0: previous lesson, uh, Mark gave us a really clear view, a really clear picture of the inability of the disciples to look beyond, to see the spiritual, to look beyond what their eyes could see and to listen beyond what their ears were hearing, to look beyond what was just right there on the surface. And we talked about how from the beginning of this study, we've seen the disciples oscillating in their faith, going from you know, an act of great faith to an act of you know, just totally showing that they, they were missing the whole point, you know, that they, they weren't quite there. And when you, read in, uh, when you read through a passage like the one we did last week, uh, where the disciples were just not getting it at all, everything was just going right over their heads, it kind of makes you wonder, what is it going to take? I mean, what's it going to take? What is going to finally get the disciples to the point where they actually get it? Because they really haven't gotten it up to this point. They've seen some crazy things, some amazing things, and they haven't gotten it. So what is it going to take? Are these guys ever going to get it? We know that they do. That's why we have our Bibles, because they eventually, or that's why we have the New Testament, because they did eventually get it. But what's it going to take? Are they ever going to open their eyes Spiritually speaking, H.G. Wells, Uh, you may have heard of him, he was a very famous English author who uh, was known for writing uh, science fiction novels, and he once wrote a short story, a really interesting short story called The Country of the Blind. Uh, The story is set in the country of Ecuador in this beautiful valley which is all but inaccessible to the outside world. Uh, due to this disease that has entered this valley and which spreads from person to person rapidly, uh, at one point, the people in this valley are all rendered completely blind, unable to, to physically see. And after 15 generations have passed in this people, in this valley, uh, there, there was no longer any talk of seeing. It was almost like it didn't even Exist the people no longer believed that doing so was possible, and finally, one day, a man falls into their midst. Literally, falls into their midst. He's on a cliff and he falls off, and he somehow survives the fall and he goes into this valley. Um, And he was thus the first outsider, the first person from the outside world in 15 generations to come into their midst. And once he realizes that the people are blind, he tries to tell them what it's like to see, what they're missing out on. And so H.G. Wells writes about this man. He says he tried at first on several occasions to tell them of sight. Look here, you people, he said. There are things you do not understand in me. Once or twice, one or two of them attended to him. They sat with faces downcast and ears turned intelligently toward him, and he did his best to tell them what it was to see. And what we, what we see as we go through this story is that despite his efforts, despite his best efforts, the people, for the most part, completely ignore him. Why? Because they think he's crazy. They think he's nuts. He's talking about seeing, which they don't think is even possible. And so in their opinion, this guy is bonkers. He's out of his mind. And so when he falls in love with this woman who is in the tribe, uh, in this blinded tribe, uh, her father is really concerned. And so he goes to see basically a shrink, uh, asking, what are we going to do? What, what what can we do to fix this guy so that he can uh, marry my daughter? And so Wells continues telling us what the advice of the doctor is. And he writes, quote, uh, the doctor is saying, I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him complete, all that we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation, namely to remove these irritant bodies. He's talking about his eyes, these irritant bodies. And then he'll be sane, asked the father, then he will be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. And the father responds by saying, thank heavens for science. So the man finds out, you know, word gets back to him, you're going to have to go through this operation to become blind, like one of us, if you want to marry this woman. And so what's his response? Wells writes, he had fully meant to go to a lonely place where the meadows were beautiful with white narcissists, and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come, but As he walked, he lifted up his eyes and saw the morning, the morning like an angel in golden armor marching down the steeps. It seemed to him that before this splendor, he and this blind world in the valley and his love and all were no more than a pit of sin, and the man who could see escaped the country of the blind with his life. The country of the blind, where they're not even sure, they don't even believe that it's possible to see, and if you think you can see, you're nuts, you're crazy, that's not all that different, spiritually speaking, to where the disciples find themselves at this point. They're positive that they are A-OK, they are in perfect spiritual health, and they're totally oblivious to the fact that there is light in their presence, that the light has come into the darkness. And that's unfortunately, sadly, the same boat that a lot of people who fill the churches in our country are in. That's that's the same boat that a lot of people in our country are in. Jesus tells us that men love the darkness. Why? Because they love doing evil things. And so their spiritual eyes are closed. The spiritual eyes of the disciples are closed. And opening those eyes is a work that can't be done just on an intellectual level. Opening somebody's spiritual eyes is not something that you can actually convince them intellectually to do because it's actually an issue of hard-heartedness. Convincing someone of their spiritual blindness when they've been spiritually blind since the day they were born is just like the the people in this valley. They, They think you're crazy. That's why, you know, it's no easy task, and that's why it's not our job to convince and convert. Our job is to plant seeds of the kingdom, but we can't actually convert somebody. We can't actually convince somebody on an intellectual level and lead, that lead to their conversion. It's something that belongs to the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you and I can do. So that's where we find the disciples as we continue our study of the book of Mark today. They've been spiritually blind. They've made it completely obvious and Jesus rebuked them. Remember, they are out on the sea and they, they've got, they've got uh, one loaf of bread, and they say, We've got no bread, even though they had seen Jesus multiply loaves of bread. And so Jesus rebuked them in an effort to show them how blind spiritually they truly were. Will they finally wake up and open their spiritual eyes? Let's continue studying. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, verses 22 to 25. And they came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly." This is a really strange story. This is a really strange uh, narrative of a miracle. And in fact, none of the other gospel narratives even mention this healing. Uh, Mark is the only one that tells us about this specific miracle. But that's not why it's strange. It's strange because it's the only miracle that's recorded in the, the gospel narratives that Jesus does in two phases now, maybe that shouldn't surprise us too much, maybe, because uh, Jesus' miracles are never the same. He never does the exact same thing. It depends on the situation, and it also depends on exactly what he's trying to teach. Depending on what he's trying to teach in the situation, the miracles are all, always different. So maybe it shouldn't be too surprising that this one is really, really different. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence, however, uh, that we go from seeing the spiritual blindness of the disciples as they're out on the Sea of Galilee to seeing the physical blindness of this man in Bethsaida. We need to remember that when Jesus performed a miracle, there was always a message behind the miracle that he wanted for us to catch. And so what we should see here is that Mark has actually, he, he's made something of, of a sandwich here. He's sandwiched the blindness of the disciples, between the healing of the deaf and mute man and this man, healing of the blind man. Uh, So both of them are restored. Is that a coincidence that that Mark has made it that way, that he's written it this way with the the unfaithfulness, uh, the the spiritual blindness sandwiched in between these two things? I don't think so. Um, So the setting for this miracle is, uh, is Bethsaida. Uh, And that's a place where Jesus has ministered before, but it's been a while. And almost immediately, the people of Bethsaida bring this blind man to Jesus and ask Jesus to touch him. And just like with the deaf and mute man, Jesus doesn't do exactly what the people ask him to do. He's got his own way of doing things, and he's not just putting on an act. So Jesus does uh, the same thing that he did over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee with the deaf and mute man. He brings this blind man to a place that is away from the crowd. He brings him outside of the village, away from the crowds where only the disciples and maybe a few others, uh, we can't be sure, but the whole crowd is not there to witness it. The disciples and maybe a few other people are there to witness what Jesus is doing. And once again, there's one more similarity, and that is that Jesus uses his saliva to heal this man. He had used his saliva to heal the deaf and mute man, and Jesus is going to use his saliva to heal this blind man as well. Um, which is kind of weird and it's not the same as when Jesus you know John tells us of a time when Jesus healed a blind man by spitting in the mud and rubbing the mud on the man's eyes Uh, no this is a completely different scenario Uh, Mark tells us that uh, that Jesus spits directly into the man's eyes directly into the man's eyes Um, is that weird he just like goes up to this guy and spits in his eyes? Is that weird? I mean, um, it, it probably is. Are anybody besides me a germaphobe in here? Uh, you know, uh, I, I look at that and I think, oh, wow, that's really kind of kind of nasty, if not insulting. So why does Jesus spit into this man's eyes? The obvious answer is to heal him, right? Um but Mark doesn't tell us uh, why it was necessary or why he did it this way. I mean, wouldn't it have been enough for Jesus just to will that this man see? Sure. He, he's, he's done that before. If he wills something, like the woman uh, in, in, in the, the Gentile region, you know, she wanted her daughter healed. He said, okay, she's, she's healed. Go home. And so it would be enough for Jesus just to will that this man see again. Uh, but, you know, this is a question, why, why did Jesus spit into this man's eyes? It, it's a question that commentators have really um, struggled with for like 2,000 years. Like since this was written, there are all these ideas as to why Jesus spit into uh, this guy's eyes. Uh, some will say, well, you know, just like a mother, you know, she, if she sees her, her son get a, a cut on his finger, you know, she'll, she'll kiss it or something like that. Come on. That's not what... He's spitting in his eyes. Uh, That's really different from from kissing a boo-boo. So so I I don't think that he was just trying to show compassion by spitting in the man's eyes. Uh, I I don't see that really as an act of compassion. Let me give you my take on it. Um, My answer is that like everything else Jesus did when he healed people, what he's doing here is symbolic of something else. He did not have to spit in the man's eyes. He's trying to teach the disciples something by spitting in this man's eyes. See, when when he healed people, it was like a parable without words. So there's a message behind uh, the method. So what's the message that Jesus is trying to convey here? Well, this is my take on it, and uh, honestly, I, I didn't get this in any of the commentaries that I read. I have haven't heard anybody else uh, give this theory. My personal theory, uh, maybe my unique understanding, is that Jesus is telling us here that everything, literally everything uh, that comes out of His mouth, is clean and capable of healing and restoring us. Usually, that's His words, but it also means His spit. Uh, Remember, he has just rebuked the disciples. I think spitting in somebody's eye would be really insulting, but so would be getting rebuked really strongly. So, in my opinion, it's kind of a parable of what we've seen. So, you know, as far as interpretations go, no, you know, I, I probably wouldn't bet my shoes that I'm right on this, uh, but I think that that's as good a theory as any. It's, it's better than, you know, Jesus is trying to show compassion by spitting in this guy's eye, you know, but that's just me. But, but now something strange happens. So he, he's, he's spitting this man's eyes and he's put his hands over his eyes and something strange happens. Jesus questions the man's ability to see. That's strange, because uh, instead of saying, um, you know, you can see now, or eyes be opened. Remember, with the deaf and mute man, he said, ears be opened, right? But instead of saying, eyes be opened, he says, do you see anything? And it amazes me that some commentators, some theologians uh, try to explain this question by saying that you know, Jesus wasn't sure that his power was enough to heal this man. Jesus wasn't sure that this guy was healed. No, Jesus knew what he was doing. And this is all very intentional. He planned for this healing to happen in two separate phases. And so the man responds that he can see, but not very well. He, he's seeing men like trees. Uh, in other words, he's, he's nearsighted. He can see something that's you know, right in front of his face, but something that's you know, even a little bit distant uh, gets blurry. He, he doesn't see things clearly if they're even a little bit in the distance. So who are these men that he's seeing as, as trees? I'm, I'm guessing that it's the disciples around Jesus. Um, probably. But whatever the case, the fact that the miracle is incomplete... Again, makes this a really unique, profoundly different miracle. Uh, every other time Jesus healed someone, there there was no question about it. It was like, boom, it's done. You know, we don't need to go on to the second phase. There is no second phase. You are healed. Go home, pick up your pallet. You know, you're you're made well, but not this time. Now, some have speculated that there was, uh, there was a lack of faith in Bethsaida, so Jesus' powers were limited in their presence. And I don't think any of us buy into that at all, based on your reactions. Um, I can't buy into it, because Jesus has always proven himself to be sufficient, no matter what the circumstances might look like. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we get taught over and over and over again that nothing is too difficult, nothing is impossible for God. And so I'd say that it's safe to reject the idea that Jesus' power was insufficient for any reason here. No, this is the way that Jesus has intended this miracle to play out because he's teaching something to the disciples. There is a message behind the method. So Jesus has been trying to get the disciples to open their spiritual eyes. That's the context here. He's trying to get the disciples to see clearly. And he spent several months teaching them as they traveled down through modern-day Syria. Remember, they went into this Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, and they came down through modern-day Syria. probably took anywhere from six to ten months. And he's been spending all that time trying to teach them who he is, and now we're seeing that the analogy is that they are a lot like this physically blind man. Spiritually, they are just as physically blind as this man. It's symbolic of what's about to happen as we get further into this passage. We're going to get there. So, for the second time, Jesus puts his hands on the eyes of the blind man. The man says, I, "I'm not seeing so great. I'm, I'm seeing men as trees." So, Jesus puts his hands back on the man's eyes, and this time the man's sight is made clear. See, the first time the man's sight wasn't there, but he, you know, he, he wasn't seeing clearly. Likewise, the disciples had spiritual eyes and. A lot of the time, they weren't seeing at all, or they were seeing things really funny. And so, Jesus rebuked them for failing to see spiritually, but those words, His rebuke on the boat, like this spit, were meant to restore and heal, rather than insult and demean. But just like Jesus wasn't done with the blind man, He wasn't done with the disciples, He wasn't just going to leave them in their spiritual blindness, just like He won't leave us in ours. When we're not seeing clearly, it's because He's not done with us. It's okay when we don't see things clearly because He's still got work to do in us. Like with this blind man, we go through this process, these stages in which we can become confident and more confident of who Jesus is and the fact that He's not done with us He's still doing a work on us, even though at the time we might not completely understand exactly how he's doing it or why he's doing it. Now, before we continue, let's not miss the warning that Jesus issues to the man. In verse 26 here, Mark chapter 8, verse 26. And he, Jesus, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, this is similar to to the warnings that Jesus has given before. But up until this point, really, all, all Jesus has done is tell people, don't tell anyone, or only go and, and tell the, the priests in the temple, right? But, but don't tell everyone. But this time, Jesus says, don't even go into the village. It's different, and it's significant. Why, why does he tell them, don't even go into the village? Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, you know, it's the same reasons as he's given before. You know, he, uh, you know we, we've seen that he doesn't, uh, he, you know, he doesn't want people talking about all the things that they've experienced and seen because he wants people to come to him for the right reasons. He knows that if people talk, you know, curiosity gets aroused, but commitment doesn't necessarily follow. And so he wants people to follow him for the right reasons. Okay, uh, I, I think there's something more here than just that. You see, as a blind person, as a blind man, the normal thing in their culture for this guy to have done was to hang out in the downtown business area of the village, relying on what people give him, begging from people to give to him. And Jesus knows that when life gets hard for this guy, it would be easy for this guy to go into town, maybe even pretend to be blind, Or act like he's blind and return to his old ways where he relies on the blessings of other people instead of looking for the blessings from God. But by telling this man not to return to town, Jesus is essentially telling him, I've given you every blessing you need. Your eyes are open. Don't go back to the life that you had before me, don't go back to the village. You see, the world would look around themselves and say, hey, you know, I've only got one loaf of bread on this boat with me. That's, that's as good as no bread because there are 12 of us. What are we going to do? And panic would ensue. The world would say, oh, I've been blind for so long. I don't have any job skills. I really don't have much of an education. What am I going to do? And the temptation would be to go right back to the way that you were living before. Seeing things the way you used to see things spiritually, thinking the way that you used to think. And so instead of seeking blessings from heaven, you fall back into this seeking blessings out of the kindness of the hearts of other people. The kindness in the hearts of other people. Good good luck with that. See, when our flesh and our spirit are at war with each other, our flesh is going to do everything that it can to convince us that the spirit isn't satisfying us. That satisfaction is only found in the flesh, by indulging, by going back to the village. But this is Jesus' way of saying, what I have given you is way more than you even need. Way sufficient. So don't go back to the village. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us past tense, into the present, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's already there. The blessings of heaven are already there. The, the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing that we would expect to get in heaven, is ours now. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to possess Heavenly blessings. I'm not talking about earthly blessings. I'm not talking about a fancy new car that just shows up on your driveway with the keys in it out of nowhere and, wow, what did I do to get this? Or, you know, you get a check for half a million bucks from an uncle that you didn't even know that you had. Uh, You know, I'm not talking about that. Those are earthly blessings. But all the spiritual blessings that we need, all the spiritual blessings that we could even dream of, are ours now. So, don't go back to the village. Let's continue. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and 28. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. Now, it's interesting that this is the first time that Jesus has at least seemed to express an interest in the thoughts or opinions of other people. Um, you know, this was a couple days' walk from Bethsaida, where they're going to the northern shores of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. It was, it was a couple days' walk. There was plenty of time for them to talk as they go up to the northern shore. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, by the way, was the territory of the brother of herod uh, philippi who uh, and it was filled with uh, roman and greek culture all sorts of temples built for these false gods there were some jews in this area but not a whole lot uh, the temples were famous for being devoted to the worship uh, of the pagan god Pan. and so finally jesus pops this question who, who do people say that i am Guys, you know, you guys have been interacting with other people in the villages that we've gone through. You guys have talked with people, and you guys have ears. What are people saying about me? He knew that the disciples had had interaction with people, and so he wants to know what they've heard. And of course, they they rattle off a bunch of answers that are wrong, incorrect answers. Uh, They've heard about uh, John the Baptist, but remember, this is before cameras, Uh, So they hadn't necessarily seen John the Baptist. They'd just heard about John the Baptist. And, you know, Jesus seems to be preaching a really similar message. So some wonder if it's him. Maybe word hadn't completely spread that John the Baptist was dead. Uh, Or maybe they knew of Herod's fondness of John the Baptist. And so maybe there was some conspiracy theory that, uh, that Herod had staged the death of John the Baptist and actually released him. So some conclude, based on Jesus' teachings and the fact that he's teaching the same thing that John the Baptist taught, repent, right? So some think, you know, this must be John the Baptist. Some wonder if it's Elijah. Now, why would they think it would be Elijah? Remember, Elijah was never, he never experienced death. He was raptured. And he did a lot of these amazing signs and wonders through his ministry. And so based on the miracles that Jesus has been performing, some people are saying, oh, maybe maybe this is Elijah. Elijah's back. And others think that Jesus is one of the prophets. Uh, now, this is not a case, by the way, of people thinking that, uh, that one of the prophets has been reincarnated in the form of Jesus. Uh, sadly... Uh, I've actually seen people use this verse to support the idea that reincarnation is a biblical concept. No, reincarnation is never, ever, ever taught in the Bible. Instead, the book of Hebrews tells us that a person dies only once, and after that, they're judged. So, no, this is not supporting uh, reincarnation. The people don't believe that Jesus is the reincarnation of the people or the prophets of old. Rather, they've concluded that Jesus is just another prophet in the long line of Israel's prophets. Of course, none of these answers are right. But that's what people, these these are the answers that people have concluded, that they've come to when you're talking about who they think Jesus is. And sadly, today, you might hear similar answers. Oh, Jesus, is, He was just a prophet. Oh, Jesus, you know He, he was just a, a really good teacher. Oh, you know, Jesus, He was a really religious person, and He cared about justice, uh, and that's what He came for, just social justice. Now, He is those things. He's all of those things, but those answers alone by themselves are incorrect because they're insufficient. He's all of these things and much more. He's also the God who created the whole universe. He's also the lamb who was slain for our transgressions. So Jesus presses the disciples for answers now, for their answers. Verses 29 and 30. And he, Jesus, continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Well, look at whose spiritual eyes are finally open, right? Peter. Peter's getting a glimpse of the spiritual reality that Jesus has been trying to get him to see since chapter 1. After all the ridiculous things that Peter and the disciples have said up to this point, when they're put on the spot, the one question that really matters, they ace it. They got it. It's not what the people are saying. That's not what they've heard from somebody else. No, this is an answer that wasn't influenced by the people. And by the way, when Peter says, you are the Christ, we need to remember, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ, who is the Greek word for anointed or Messiah. So they understand this is the Messiah, the guy who's been promised. No, Jesus' last name would have been uh, Bar-Joseph, right? So what's Jesus doing here? By pressing them for their answers, what's, what's he really doing here? Do you see anything? That's what he's asking. Do you see anything? And obviously they finally do. And just like the blind man hadn't healed himself, they hadn't arrived at this conclusion by themselves either. Matthew's sure to tell us how they arrived at this conclusion. It wasn't on their own, they weren't the ones to open their spiritual eyes. Instead, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, and Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Jonah was. Simon's last name, that's where Bar-Joseph comes from for Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see, it wasn't Peter's intellectual prowess or his sharp ability to think and reason and be logical. Yeah, right. Like Peter had those things, right? Uh, It wasn't those things that led him to understand exactly who Jesus is. It wasn't Peter's intellectual prowess that opened his spiritual eyes. It was God the Father. The Father opened Peter's eyes. This is something that no amount of evidence, no amount of convincing and persuasion and argument could have done. No logic, no reason would have led him to this conclusion because it's a conclusion that must be spiritually discerned. So, he gets the right answer. And here Jesus proclaims that this statement, this understanding, this proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, this is the foundation that God's called out ones, his church, will be built on. That's the foundation that they'll be built upon. It's a foundation that hasn't eroded in 2,000 years, not a single bit, and it's never going to be destroyed by the powers of darkness in this world. Do you see anything? See, the question, who do you say I am, is a question, it's basically the same thing, and it's a question that all of us, every person on the face of the planet, is going to have to answer someday. So how are you going to answer it? See, there comes a point when, it's okay to be curious, but there comes a point when you have to go beyond that curiosity and move to commitment. Commitment. There comes a time when we can no longer just see him as nothing more than a good teacher. And so we give him admiration. There comes a point where admiration has to lead to adoration. See, whether a person's eyes have been spiritually opened or not, whether they're in light or in spiritual darkness, will be revealed by each person's answer. The world loves the darkness, but Jesus is The light. He's the true light of the world. And in a way, I kind of think that this is Jesus' way of saying, don't get prideful on me here, Peter. You didn't figure this out on your own. You were in darkness. You had the responsibility of coming to the light when it was shined in your direction. But that's because the light was revealed to you. And you responded to it rather than turning away. The light wasn't yours. The Father was the one who led you to that conclusion. And so Jesus follows this up by warning the disciples not to reveal the answer to people. Man, he's warning people a lot, even his closest disciples, not to tell anyone about a lot of things. So why is he telling them, don't tell anyone that you've got the right answer? It's because they themselves can't open anyone's spiritual eyes. It's something that only God can do. That's the job of the Holy Spirit in our lives post ascension jesus sent the holy spirit to do this work in us to open our spiritual eyes see everyone expected the messiah to be this earthly king but kings don't suffer and jesus knew he was going to suffer nobody not even the disciples fully realized the implications or the significance of peter's confession not yet they would. They eventually would understand exactly the, what, how it was significant and what the implications were, but they weren't there just yet. They, their vision is still kind of fuzzy. They're not seeing things exactly clearly just yet. And so, despite the fact that Peter is seeing, we need to understand that he's not seeing clearly yet. So, let's continue. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So as soon as Jesus is sure that they've figured out who He is, as soon as their spiritual eyes are opened, He lets them in on His whole purpose in life. The whole reason that He came. It's not about establishing this big earthly kingdom. It's not about blessing uh, in a worldly way, financially or materially or otherwise. It's not about freeing Israel from Roman occupation It's about Jesus coming as the Lamb who was slain. The perfect Lamb who would be slain. Laying down His life on the behalf of those who belong to Him. Those who have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation rather than trusting on what they've done. Now of course, if the disciples had been correctly discerning from the beginning, they would have caught some of this before this point, when Jesus told the Pharisees, for example, that they weren't going to receive a sign, but the sign of Jonah, in other words, that he would be resurrected, uh, right? So we've seen uh, him talk about things like this before, I mean, it did get recorded in the pages of Scripture, They, they heard it, but they didn't comprehend it. But Jesus now is putting it all together by explaining exactly what He meant when He was talking about those things. Mark tells us that He was stating the matter plainly. Now they were getting it. Now they were putting two and two together. Now there was no mistaking what Jesus' intentions were and what His purpose was. And here's Peter. He's just made this brilliant confession And he's all of a sudden thinking, wait a minute, this can't happen. That's not the way this is supposed to go down. I won't let them crucify Jesus. I won't let Jesus be crucified. And so Peter starts rebuking Jesus. Oscillating. Going from great faith to what was that? He's rebuking Jesus. And the crazy thing is, not only did he think that he had the right to do so, but he probably expected to be commended for his bravery. Jesus has just commended him. He's probably expecting more accolades. He's seen, but he's nearsighted. Peter is spiritually nearsighted. All he can see is what's right in front of him at that very moment. And I think that we can probably all relate to Peter here. Being spiritually nearsighted, at least to an extent. He was expecting things to go one way, and they went the other way. He thought it was going to happen this way. That's not the plan at all. They were going to go in a direction that at the time sounded like a horrible idea. Why would we want to do this? That's a horrible idea, Jesus. And Jesus returns the rebuke. And He offers the strongest possible rebuke by telling Peter that Peter is speaking on behalf of the enemy of God Matthew tells us that Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block. "Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me." Why? Because Peter is looking at things through the perspective of the flesh rather than through the perspective of the spirit. He's seeing right here instead of out there, God's perspective is always out there and right here and behind, it's everywhere. And so we can trust him. But he's not doing that. He's not trusting God because he's seeing things through the flesh, the perspective of the flesh. Now there were times when Peter said, Jesus, I will die to save you. But Jesus knows, no. He had to die to save Peter from his sins. Same reason he had to die for all of us. Because without it, we'd all be dead in our sins. If there's no crucifixion, there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no reason for us to believe that we're not still dead in our sins. Because the resurrection is proof of our justification. It's proof of God's forgiveness toward those who trust in Jesus. Listen to what Paul wrote, or, or look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. It's proof. The resurrection is proof that the Father accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. Now friends, we we have to be really careful when we're talking about God's will. And Peter's not being very careful here talking about God's will. See, if a friend sees us experiencing Uh, pain or hardship, and their advice is something along the lines of, you know, God would never want you to go through something like this. I can't believe that God would ever allow His kids, His children to suffer. As much as we want to believe that, we also need to understand that even though God is working out things for our good in accordance with His promises, sometimes He does allow us to go through a season of hardship or even outright suffering. See, hardship is often the fire that purifies us, that teaches us to draw close to God. And I'm speaking from experience here. Hard experience. Hardship teaches us to draw close to God, not away from Him. And sometimes our greatest temptation can come from someone who wants to prevent us from walking through that fire. I'm thinking about Joseph, for example. And all the hardships that he went through, all the suffering that he had to endure, all the injustice that he experienced because of his brothers. Hardship because of his brothers, and yet he was able to forgive them because in retrospect, he says, what you thought, what you did for evil, God meant for good. See, nothing would give the enemy of God a greater satisfaction than to convince us that our hardship is a result of God's Abandoning us or convincing us that our suffering or our hardships are meaningless. He'd love for us to think that evil has won the day. And see, if we're not looking at things through the Spirit's perspective, if we're looking at things through the flesh's perspective, it's really, really tempting to believe it. That evil's won the day. That God's abandoned us. That our suffering and our hardship is all for naught don't do it. Don't fall prey to that temptation. Instead, when we're faced with suffering or hardship, tough times, the purifying fire, I would challenge you to look for the good that God can and will accomplish as a result of what you're going through. There is some good there. It's a promise that God made. And He's good for His promises. Peter needs that second touch from Jesus. The blind man needed the second touch. Peter needs the second touch from Jesus. We all do, don't we? We all struggle with this kind of thing. You know, we go from living in spiritual blindness to finally seeing, but seeing dimly. Desperately wanting to see. <clears throat> Sometimes thinking that we're, we're seeing something. And it's often in retrospect when we see that, oh, we look in the rearview mirror, oh, I I wasn't seeing that correctly at all. See, there are two stages. We come to him broken. That's the first stage. And the second stage is he teaches us to trust and to rest in him. And that is not easy. That takes a long time. More often than not, it's a painful lesson for us. It really is. But it's in the second part, when we already belong to Him, we're already His children, and He's teaching us, that we start to see more and more clearly exactly who He is. The purposes of God, we start to see those a little bit more clearly as God works things and situations out in a way that conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I know that we each go through hardships in life. That it's pretty much unavoidable. And Lord, I know that today there are people with us right now who are going through hardships. And we're all looking on and we don't understand, God. But I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes and teach us to see things from your perspective. Teach us, Lord, to rely on your promises. To know your word. To know that your word gives us so many promises. Promises that you will work out everything for good. For those who love you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see that. I pray that you would increase our trust in you. That we'd walk through the fire knowing that we're not alone. That you're with us. And that there's a great great reward at the end. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for sending Jesus to die. Thank You for His willingness to submit to the will of the Father. Even though the flesh would say, I don't want to die, I don't want to do this. He was willing. The way that He was obedient to You, Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would teach us to be obedient as well. We love You. Thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word